Welcome back, everybody. We are joined today by the one and only Gary Gray. We'll be talking deep thoughts of life, introduction to physical therapy, and where our profession really should be headed. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Thank you, everyone, for coming to listen to the Therapists in Motion podcast. Paul and Dan back with you guys. And as I mentioned earlier, we're joined by Gary Gray today. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to be here. And I, I like the uh, whole concept of Therapists in Motion. That, uh, that rings uh, quite true to me. So, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And, of course, the founder of the entirety of Health in Motion, Tim Spooner, is with us today, as well as uh, Jen Lee and Brian Schulte. So, thank you. We've got a nice big crowd in here. I'm excited to hear some thoughts and get everyone's opinion. So, Gary, I just want to launch right in and ask, therapist, coming out, I'm a new graduate, I've learned everything that I have in school, I have my parade of special tests, I have my boxes that I can try to put on my clinical prediction rules, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? Well, the uh, as being kind of an old guy, that's, uh, I believe, now a fairly easy question to answer. And uh, I think it's very important uh, for any profession to understand that when you finally get spit out with either a license or a certification or some type of authority to do something that you now have a baseline, you have a foundation. And now you have to ask yourself, is that foundation strong enough for me to do what I really want to do? Have I, have I learned what I really need to learn in order to do the best job possible? And the answer to that is no. I don't, I don't really care what school you went to or what your education was or how smart you are. Uh, being in the profession for 42 years, I just had the opportunity to spend some time with uh, Thomas Myers from Anatomy Trains. And he made this comment, isn't it great that in our 60s we're learning even more now? And uh, so the key is when you launch out of physical therapy school, that's a launching pad that start the beginning to learn more and more and more every day. And uh, so it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, pursuit. Uh, Tim said it best when we had a meeting yesterday that this is a journey. It's not a destination. And if you really embrace it as a journey, it becomes a fun opportunity to learn because there's so much to learn. There's so much uh, interesting about the human body. And there's so much that when we do learn it, we can really transform the life of the patient in front of us. So it's important to, uh, when you come out, take a deep breath, be thankful you got through physical therapy school, but then realize, you know what, I have a responsibility to myself, to my coworkers, and especially to my patients to continue to learn uh, on an ongoing basis. And I like what you mentioned earlier, you talked about motion, motion being a big word for you, the therapist in motion. We talk about health in motion. We are movement specialists. I've heard you say this many times, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. But what is a movement specialist? And what does that look like to you? What do you really see this in actual function and action? Yeah, that's a, that's really a, a, a question that I pondered because it's almost like in the days we just talked about function. Well, what is function and what is movement and what is a movement specialist and what does all that mean? And uh, it's, it's interesting because the byline for Spooner Therapy is, you know, health is motion and you would even be able to say motion is health. And when you realize about what we as human beings want, we want to um, enjoy life, but at the same time, we want to serve each other and help each other. And in order to do that, we kind of got to move. We have to be somewhat mobile. Uh, We have to have the ability to hug. We have to have the ability to to be able to hold somebody's hand. And we have to have the ability to just, uh, as I said, kind of have some fun. So motion is everything. Uh, The motion, we believe, is the new medicine. Uh, In other words, it doesn't matter what diagnosis you have. The bottom line is the person who walks through the door says, I want to be able to do this. Ability is equated to motion. 
Uh, so help me get rid of my pain, help me deal with my disease process, help me deal with my dysfunction. But everybody is saying, and I want to be able to pick up my granddaughter. I want to swing a golf club. I want to be able to walk hand in hand with my wife on the beach. I want to be able to help rake my neighbor's yard. I want to be able to lift something to help somebody uh, move the stuff in their garage. I want to move. So motion is the deal. And therefore, theoretically, if that's what they want, we have to be experts in human movement or motion. So being an expert then, I, I mean, I came out of school. I've got my clusters, my special tests. I know where to go. Last time I checked when I did the knee, I'm supposed to clear above and below. So knee, ankle, hip, that's the entire chain, right? I'm covered. I'm good. I have everything I need to know for that patient to treat them. Yeah. And, and again, you, you do. You have a good start. Uh, but then the question we would ask you is, do you know what, how the body moves with everything they want to do? So if you came out with uh, that kind of a cocky attitude uh, and you said, hey, I, I got a knee problem here because somebody's swinging a golf club, I would quickly say, well, in the backswing of a right-handed golfer with relative to that left knee, can you tell me biomechanically the movement of the left hip, left knee, and left foot subtalar joint? And you'll look at me like I just came from Mars because you'll say no. Uh, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I would want to say, if you really want to take the stress off that left knee, you got to tell me the three motions of that left hip when my club's back. Then you got to tell me what it's going to do on the follow through. And then you got to tell me what every other joint is doing in the body and how it affects the knee. And then you could tell me probably how you use movement science to help the knee. So on one hand, I'd smile if you said that, and I'd, I'd be happy that you were somewhat cocky. On the other hand, I'd already know what you don't know because I was in the same shoes 42 years ago. And, uh, and I would say, uh, you know, I'm glad you're, uh, you know, somewhat confident in what you're doing, but uh, confidence and competence could be two different things. So do you competently know what the real human movement of the body is on everything your patient wants to do? I would contend no. After 42 years, I don't know that. And so I'd be really suspicious that after, you know, three months in, in uh, as a physical therapist that you would know that. So what I'm hearing from you is well, we need to assess the entire body, look at the entire function for every different joint. So is there something that exists out there that actually looks at every potential motion across the entire body? Yeah, and that's a great setup question because, you know, again, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun that, uh, you, know, the, you know, behind the, the radio mics here, we, uh, we kind of smile and you're very kindly uh, setting me up with a beautiful, beautiful lob serve there so I can, I can hopefully <laughs> smash it. But, you know, first of all, the premise is if I'm, if I'm a new therapist out there, I'm saying, you know, if I get a diagnosis, and I, I love your analogy, just it's knee pain. Okay, well, we, we really want to ask, why do they have the knee pain? Was it, you know, jogging that caused it? Was it lifting that caused it? Was it playing tennis that caused it? Was it, do we even understand? But we know that because of the biomechanics of the knee, you said it best, you clear up and, 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 and down. So do we really know what the foot's doing when I jog? Do I really know what the hip's doing when I jog? The problem with that is the left hip really is the right hip. So if I know that the left hip is influenced by the right hip, and then if I talk to the right hip, the right hip says, but I'm really influenced by the right foot. And all of a sudden you go, oh, boy, this is, this is mind-boggling. You're telling me that a tightness of the right calf can cause a left patellofemoral problem at the knee. Yes, easy. But we didn't learn that in school. We didn't learn how to connect those dots. In order to connect those dots, you need to know, know two things. The chain reaction biomechanics of every form of human function, daunting task. Uh, but... If you then know that, then you realize, like you just said, I have to then assess every joint in all three planes of motion for every patient with any diagnosis that comes in here. So not only as a therapist do I have this amazing ability to treat the symptoms, 
But what's going to differentiate us from the rest of the world is can I treat the cause? Anybody can treat a symptom. You can just wait and the symptoms will go away. I give you an aspirin. You know, I can uh, give you, rub on it a little bit. It feels better. I want to go to somebody that says, yes, it is a tightness of your left or right calf that causes a abnormal reaction of your right hip. Your right hip is obviously limited in uh, internal rotation and therefore it fo forces that pelvis to rotate farther to the left, drags the femur with it and the femur gets externally rotated, smashes against the patella and all of a sudden everybody gets pissed off and have left knee pain. Unless I go to a practitioner that can take me through a quick movement screen and see that it is my right ankle in the sagittal plane that's causing my left knee pain, they'll be called a physical therapist, but they won't be called a movement specialist. So I want to ask a follow-up question to that. <clears throat> there are a number of movement screens out there, and some of them do a good job, and other of them, yeah, they may not necessarily have movement embedded in it, even though they classify themselves as a movement screen. So, um, you know, you mentioned that we, as movement specialists, should be able to uh, evaluate every joint in the body through a series of tasks. Can you kind of take us down that path a little bit and, and your thoughts on how to more efficiently and effectively go through that process? Yeah, and in fact, I love the way you asked the question because if you give me a task to do that I've done before, all of a sudden I feel comfortable and confident with you. So if I come into you and you give me a simple task to do, uh, like just simply lunge forward and take my hands over my head, I'm going, I just did that when I put the soup up in the a cabinet today. And so you give me a task goal oriented thing. And I'm thinking this is kind of neat. You know, he's, he's listening to me uh, and he's making it easy for me to do what he wants me to do so he can find out what he needs to find out. Uh, it really boils down to what we call a whiteboard scientific analysis, it, and you have to just follow the logic. If it's a movement screen, we obviously need to study movement and look at movement. Where movement occurs is at the joints. The next question is, what joints? Well, understanding the, the hip bones connected to the knee bone. In the song everybody sang as a little kid, we realized that everything's connected in the human body. And therefore, I have this task, as we just talked about, that I have to look at every joint in the body and knowing that every joint moves in three planes of motion there's two directions so there's six motions that would combine to give me the movement the task movement that you're talking about therefore you go wow you know if i do the math on that then i have literally 66 motions that i got to clear so to speak if you want to use that terminology but if i say clear what do you mean clear well, I want to know the maximum amount of range of motion available to them in a functional position and with functional task movement. And in addition to that, I want to know, is that motion being controlled or what some people might call strength or stability? So if you whiteboarded that right now, you would say, wow, I, you know, I can't have them here for four hours. You know, I can't I can't do all that. So if you look at some of the quote unquote screens out there, it's not. It's not our job to say that's good or bad or ugly or indifferent or, you know, uh, it's our job to say, does that screen look at all 66 motions uh, that of the human body and does it look at mobility and stability? So one of the most famous ones that's out there only does five out of 66. I don't know about you, but if I had a headache and somebody told me I possibly had a brain tumor and I'm going to take you and have you do a brain scan, but I'm only going to scan 10% of your brain, I'd go, 
Uh, that's not good enough. I want to go to a scanner that gets 100% of my brain. So when we sat down and decided what to do, we said we want a 100% brain scanner, so to speak. We want a 100% body scanner. And therefore, we looked at that and we had a eureka moment where we realized that with understanding the combination of lunge and arm swings, that we only had to have six movements, six of those tasks that you said, that would cover all 66. When Literally, if you were in our, in our what we call our war room at that time, you would have seen some guys jump up and down and, and then <laughs> jumping jacks on all three planes of motion because we didn't realize it would be that simple. Uh, so we've taken the complexity and the need to look at all 66 motions and turned it into six movements that we call the foundation for 3D maps, which is three-dimensional movement analysis and performance system, which becomes the foundation for anything movement-wise, whether it be rehabilitation, uh, prevention, performance, training. It's what the human body does. So it's, uh, it's again, I'd like to say it's Gray Institute-based or it's Dr. Dave Tiberio-based or it came from the wisdom of, you know, 42 years. It's just science-based. You just put the science up and say, this is how the body moves. This is what I have to look at. I have to look at mobility and stability. And if I use, as you properly said, something simple for the patient to do, a simple task, and I can quickly see what I need to see, I can quickly go, you know, Understanding my chain reaction biomechanics, that's probably your right ankle that's causing that left knee pain. All right. So here's a follow-up question to that. I think that breaking it down for both a therapist and a patient to be able to go through six tasks is relatively reasonable to ask during most outpatient physical therapy clinics duration for initial evaluation, mm -hmm. let's say 45 to 60 minutes. How long would you say it takes to get good at identifying successes and unsuccessful movements? I think it's probably pretty easy for people to identify what's painful because mm -hmm. the patient's going to say, yeah, that hurts, or I'm not going to do that because it hurts. But to where you would qual qualify it as successful versus unsuccessful. Yeah. And uh, that's, again, you, you another un incredible question. Uh, to get confident at it, it takes a very short period of time because success means you did it. And you, in other words, if I lunge out and reach my arms and I come back home and I don't fall and break my hip, that's pretty successful. Uh, but then how that person put it together, how they use their joints to do that, which joints contributed to that mobility, which joints contributed to that stability is kind of proportionally kind of looking at the shape of the movement. And it's quite easy to look at the shape and say, wow, there's a glitch there. It doesn't look like your hip contributed much extension. And therefore, uh, that particular task that you just did, uh, you were successful at. But boy, if we could get a little more curve in that hip, in other words, a little more hip extension, you're going to be a lot more successful. And there's going to be less stress to your low back. And there's going to be less stress to your knee if we're able to do that. So the beauty of it is it's when you walk through the whole science of it, it's very complex. The true beauty of it is, is that when you're able to do it, you can see it quite quickly, quite immediately, what success is and what we call, I love the way you say it, what's relatively non-successful. In other words, ideally, you did very good patient, but my gift to you is to build upon your successes to allow you to be even more successful. It's a little different attitude that, that, we, that we use in AFS than we do in, in therapy. A lot of times we try to find out what you can't do and then beat on that. Uh, if you can't raise your shoulder, guess what? We're going to lay you down and crank your shoulder until you, you know, give up where we look at the body and say, Hey, we're going to find out what you're really good at. And we're going to build upon your gifts. So that becomes quite quick, quite easy, quite effective and quite efficient. And immediately the confidence of the therapist gets sky high because their competence 
get sky high. In, in looking at that, what you said the the confidence of the patient, or excuse me, the therapist went up. What 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 do you see in the eyes of the patient? Uh, that's the that's even a better question because in our day when we took patients through non-functional assessments uh you know the thing we always pick on is the isokinetic cybex machine that cost forty thousand dollars that was supposed to give us objective data one of the things i noticed early on is if you looked at the patient they were perplexed they were sitting on something strapped in they had this abnormal pain stress to their knee they were doing something they've never done before if you call it task specific you could but it's not a task they've ever done and it's a quandary for them but they go wait a minute i'm not the expert here apparently this is what i'm supposed to be doing if you look at some other tests that are being done, if I'm a golfer and say I want to be a better golfer, and the first thing you do is you put me on my hands and knees and tell me to point my hand somewhere and don't move, I'm going to I'm gonna quickly kind of look at you and go, really? And hopefully I'd trust you and say, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and so uh, the real beauty of 3D Maps is, and you both have mentioned it and implied it, that if I give you a task that your body normally does, you're going, okay, this is great because if it gets me to do this better, I can actually think, lift things off the floor better. I can put things up high better. I can swing things better. I can walk better. I can do all the things that I want to do better. So the task that you're having me do in 3D Maps looks and smells and tastes like the task that I ultimately told you I want to be good at as opposed to laying you on a table and lifting your leg up or laying you on a table and pushing on something and call it a, you know, a manual muscle test or a muscle activation. And I'm looking at you and going, I've never felt this before. I've never seen this before. I've never sensed this before. But I guess, you know, you're the licensed therapist. You should know what you're doing. When the therapist looks at the eyes of the patient and the eyes of the patient go, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. You're onto something. If you look at the eyes of the patients and they're confused, if you get real, real serious with yourself, you're confused too because you're going to say, wonder why I learned this in school because this makes no sense to them and certainly doesn't make any sense to me. What, what's the biggest hurdle you've experienced working with both training people and seeing in patients as you've evolved the system? Uh, the biggest hurdle is to, to get to the place where uh, you do feel competent uh, and again, and the competence. And that's what I want as a professional. I want to know when somebody walks to the door, I'm giving them my best shot. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that because they're seeing me, that they're going to have a good chance that I can create an environment where they'll move better and their pain will get less and they'll be enjoy life more. Um, and what we realize is that there's so much we didn't learn in school, such as the chain reaction biomechanics. That's the biggest hurdle. People have to learn that before they can actually implement the use of 3D maps. Uh, I've gone to thousands and thousands of therapists and explained the whole science behind 3D maps. And then the next question is, why do I even need to do that? Why would I want to know how the right hip moved if somebody has left knee pain? And I immediately go, oh, crap, we, 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 you know, we got the cart in front of the horse here. Uh, that you know, if you don't understand what the right hip has to do with the left knee, you're right. We probably don't have to do that. I, I've just wasted your time. But if you're a movement specialist and you understand how the body really moves, uh, the biggest hurdle, Tim, is that we just we have to understand how the body's connected. And that's a big missing link in education. Uh, it's something as simple as when I walk, 
what is my L5 segment doing all three planes of motion? We should be able to answer that quick as if we're a movement specialist. And then I should be able to tell you what the mid-tarsal joint's doing, and I should be able to tell you what T7 is doing, and I should be able to tell you what the left scapula is doing. And I should be able to do that with every form of human movement. Anybody listening to this right now, they just want to be really dead honest with themselves. They're going, yeah, I probably should know that, but I do not know that. And that could be a hurdle because that's a you have to commit to learning that. You know, the people around this table have all committed, and you have to put a little time and effort into that. And uh, unless you make that commitment, it's going to be you're never going to be competent, and therefore you'll never be confident. And that's when you get and get the thing like, well, you know, I guess I'll just follow the evidence-based protocol here, and I hope and pray that left knee pain gets better. And and if it doesn't, I guess you know I'll just tell them, hey, you give it your best shot. Good luck, you know. See you later. Make sure uh, you sign this insurance form so we get our insurance money out of this deal and uh, go and have a have a good life. So a little facetious there, but the big hurdle is a commitment to educating yourself on how the body really moves if you want to be a movement specialist. So I'm hearing uh, definitely you know, movement specialist from the therapist. We talked about how the therapist gets confidence. And I like then also you talked about the patient. Did it pass the smell test? Does this look like my activity or does it look like I'm doing bird dog when I've never been kneeling in any position for my golf game that I need to actually have? So talk about the patient, talk about the therapist. Another thing you talked a little bit about, though, was the science. And I love I'm interested in more thoughts from you as far as the environment and then what the specificity is and what the science talks about for the individual applying these things. Like, hey, we look at the whole body, look at movement. Well, how does this translate most effectively? Yeah. And again, you guys, uh, it's almost like I, um, you know, you're, you're way ahead of me because your questions are so good. Uh, because when we first got into uh, the world of therapy and had the uh, literally the honor and the privilege of sharing what we thought and teaching other people, a lot of what we shared was our opinion. Uh, our hypothesis, our idea based on a lot of mistakes, not based on success, but based on a lot of failures. And we got to a point, uh, and this was led by Dr. David Tiberio, uh, of about 20 years ago to say, you know, no longer can we share just our opinion. No longer can we share our experience. No longer can we share what we call the infomercial of this worldly work for this one person. And therefore, you everybody needs copper-infused underwear. You know, we, 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 we have to, we have to if we're going to get up in front of people and people are going to be kind enough to spend money and time and invest energy, uh, that we should present only a scientific approach to human movement. So that's when we develop what we call applied functional science, the physical sciences, the biological sciences, and the behavioral sciences. Because we found out that there's people 10 times smarter than us that understand the physics of it all. You know, why did the apple always go down from the tree? You know, why didn't it take off to the left or right, or why didn't it go up? And does that have anything to do with the fact that the hamstring doesn't flex the knee that gravity does? And, you know, what's massive momentum to have to do with this? And then understanding biological, and, the, and that's the, obviously the biomechanical and obviously the neurology of it all, we realized we didn't learn that in school. We probably should have, but we, we didn't learn any of that in school, how muscles really function when we function, how joints really function, what movement does to proprioceptors to turn on that function. And the big thing that we missed, uh, and I think is a big part of it, is the behavioral science, what's down deep in the heart and the spirit of that patient that either encourages them or discourage them, and that would allow them to, as Tim said, buy into what we're doing, that I can see it in their eyes that they got this. And if it's based on science, what the behavioral scientists tell us, 
and what the biological scientists tell us and what the physical scientists tell us, if we follow that scientific proof, you want to talk about evidence, there's millions and millions and millions of realms of evidence of what we do. If we start with that truth, then we develop the strategy from the truth, and then our techniques obviously look a lot different than a lot of people's techniques, but they're not made up. They're not, oh, I think this works. I, you know, We came up with this idea. We almost feel embarrassed because we didn't come up with anything. We stole from all the scientists that have gone on before us. We developed strategies from that science. And now when we go and lengthen a hip flexor, we do it in three planes of motion using hand drivers, pelvis drivers, foot drivers. And then we put it in the transformational zone of the golf swing so the hip flexor works during the golf swing. That's based on science. That's not just, hey, we figured this out because we live in Adrian, Michigan. I got I to gotta ask the Tim Spooner question here. Why? Why do we miss this in school? Why isn't this addressed? Uh, that's, uh, we'll ask him that. <laughs> yeah, if, if that's the Tim Spooner question, we, we, we probably want the Tim Spooner answer. Uh, and I, I, I usually have pretty good answers to things. You know, I can ramble on, as you can already tell. I'm going to say I don't know. Um, I honestly don't know because uh, we've learned so much in the last 40 years. And when I, uh, and again, one of the blessing opportunities I have is I still get to mentor students before they get out of physical therapy school. So our, th our clinics have students. And of course, the very first thing I ask students, and they come from all over the country to come to our facilities because they want to get a taste of AFS, the science of AFS. Uh, I'll ask them some very simple questions, and I realize their answers are exactly the answer I would have gave 42 years ago. And a little bit that's embarrassing, that our profession has not stayed up with the science. And when I ask professors, how can you not teach 3D maps? How can you not teach chain reaction biomechanics? How can you not teach how muscles really function? How can you not teach what the proprioceptors really do? How, how do you not spend 100% of your time making that therapist a movement specialist? They all have the universal answer because the state board doesn't have those questions on there. So a big part of the, the real question is, why have we not kept up with the, with the science with our state board examination? Because that drives the education. Uh, so that's the real question. And I'm not in charge of that, uh, and, but I would love to have somebody tell me why we uh, don't almost every two or three years enhance our test in order to reflect the newest research and science in human movement. You bring up uh, you know, some questions that obviously you've bucked along the way. Um, in terms of running into whether it's academia or people that um, are not uh, uh, ready for ready for change, um, do you have any ins have any reasons why you think that is so? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of reasons. Probably wouldn't want to share right now because again, um, you know, it's it's a universal thought process. Um, if you have, and this is, this is not only in the physical therapy profession, this is any, any professional organization. If you have kind of a leadership of a professional organization that says we're going to represent all of the, in this case, physical therapists of the world, the first question is what percent of the physical therapists trust that? Well, our particular organization, I, I don't know the exact statistics, but I know it's a very small amount of therapists who trust what our with the leadership of our profession is doing that that should be the first question why is that why does a the average therapist not see value in the only professional organization we have it's not like they have a choice to go to three or four uh the, the next question is how willing are you to go outside your bubble or the good old girl or good old boy network and again most most big professions aren't willing to do that 
you know they have their people they have their their the same people do the same you know, seminars for the APTA the same people you know meet for the for the same meetings for the APTA and if an outsider like me and I would be considered an outsider uh, first of all is never invited and that's that's a weakness of our system um, another weakness of our system is is that because of the kind nature of the average therapist and the servant attitude uh, and just the wonderfulness of their spirit uh, we're not inclined to argue very well uh, when we argue we take it personally and our bottom lip comes out so if you tell me that the hamstring flexes the knee and I said, well, yeah, if you lay on a table and lay on your belly and you contract it, it will. But no one that I know of is really concerned about how well their knee flexes when they're laying on their belly watching TV. And that when you stand up, that it's obvious that gravity does that and the hamstring actually controls the rotation of the knee, the varus and valgus of the knee. And of course, it doesn't flex the knee, it extends the knee. And all of a sudden, that's what science says. Oh, that would hurt their feelings. Uh, if you know, one of you already kind of made fun of the bird dog test. Okay, whoever came up with the bird dog test for a functional movement screen, if they're listening, you just hurt their feelings. Okay, you didn't say anything bad about them. You just challenged something that we've been doing for 40 years that makes no sense. Um, if I say I think it's ridiculous to lay somebody on the table and lift their leg up and call that a hamstring test, because the hamstring would say I don't do this. I, you know, I don't know why we're doing it this way. Uh, but whoever came up with that, you're going to hurt their feelings. So challenge scares a lot of people. But some professions know. Imagine being a part of a computer profession and understand that over the last 40 years, nothing's changed in education. In the computer profession, every four days, something changes. In orthopedic surgery, every five years, I think their whole state board examination changes almost 100%. I don't know what the statistics are. I talked to one person and they said, maybe over the last four years, ours has changed maybe less than 5%. And um, so, again, I think uh, a lot of people can point fingers. And if the question is, why why don't we look listen to common sense and why don't we do this? Because ultimately, we're going to help our kids that are in therapy school. And ultimately, they're going to come out and help patients. And we can really, we could really change the world if we basically said, you know, let's get a lot of ordinary people in here. And let's, let's go at it, but let's hug afterwards. And, uh, but at the end of the day, leave your ego at the door. Tough to, tough to do, easy to say. And let's just do what's best for the patient. Let's do best with the individual out there. If we took that attitude, I think we could get to where we want to go. I don't think there's a lot of people in leadership that want to do that. And I think you really hit it on the head there. I mean, just what is best for the patient? What what are we doing? And I think every person in this room can look around and say, I've made mistakes. I've learned from my mistakes. You and I've bet. Developed. And like you said, it's a lifelong learning process. Mm-hmm. You can't become stagnant. If you ever think you have everything covered, you're missing something. Something new and great is coming up out there. So I, I think you hit that dead on the head. Just can't emphasize those listening out there enough. Keep learning. Keep striving. Keep challenging yourself. And then keep asking yourself, am I looking at the patient? Am I putting them first? Am I doing what they need? Am I getting to their function? Am I getting to the basis of what that person truly needs to accomplish? So thank you for that. And before we say goodbye for now, I do want to ask Gary, do you have any final thoughts you would like to leave us with? No, I, I love the fact that you uh, are putting a podcast together to get us to think. And, uh, you know, hopefully there's some people out there that are nodding their head in the sagittal plane saying, yes, this is cool. Uh, you know, hopefully there's some people out there that are nodding their head in the transfers plane and going, wow, you know, you kind of picked on me a little bit here. And, uh, and hopefully there's some people listen to this and said, you know, who needs to listen to this? 
I'm going to forward this to my buddy or I'm going to forward this to, you know, some people that they uh, may be challenged. And again, I think we have to understand we'll challenge the information. I don't mind you challenging the information uh, that we do anytime. It's when you tell me my dog's ugly. That, that my feelings will get hurt. And so we've called nobody ugly. We've called nobody stupid. We've all made mistakes. All we're challenging is if you follow science and you can come up with a better science than what we've come up with, we'd like to see it. And we'd like to have the opportunity to present our position in order to ultimately help the patient. And you said it best. If that's the litmus test, then I'd be happy. But if we're protecting our job, we're protecting our ego, we're protecting whatever, our little network of people, if we're, you know, protecting a little study that we did, or if we're protecting our certification, or if we're protecting that, then we got to challenge ourselves and say, are you really doing your best, or are you just protecting your pocketbook today? Well, the good news is, for those of us out there who might be nodding in the transverse plane grossly, anyone in this room who knows physiology and anatomy knows there is still a sagittal plane motion happening there with that <laughs> nod still. So... <laughs> Just a reminder for those out you yeah. listening, if you have any thoughts or comments, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerphysicaltherapy.com. Thank you all for listening.